Hello and welcome to the Drucker Forum Report. I'm Peter Day with a podcast about some of the ideas that will be in the air and up for discussion at the 2017 Global Peter Drucker Forum in Vienna in November. This year's theme is a highly topical one, growth and inclusive prosperity. With me, one of the participants, Alison Stewart-Allen. She's a marketing expert originally from California who founded and is chief executive of a consultancy called International Marketing Partners, based in London. What does it do, Alison? We help companies figure out how to grow internationally. And one of the big challenges when you have businesses that make assumptions about overseas markets is that those assumptions cost them a lot of money because they naturally think that every overseas market is just like it is at home until they realize that, you know, maybe the culture is different or the languages or the colors or the way people behave. And we try to help them avoid the pain. We're talking about not the largest businesses because they have lots of people on staff who do this kind of thing for a living. Well, that's a very good question. In fact, the bigger the company, the more likely they are to make these sorts of errors because they actually have less consciousness about money, oddly enough. Smaller businesses are extremely cost-conscious and therefore extremely careful, slow but careful. And bigger companies very often make the assumption that what plays here at home plays everywhere, and they, oddly enough, are more likely to be the ones that need the most help. Of course, as an American abroad, you're an expert on Americans abroad. Abroad, and you've actually written a book about Americans for people who are abroad. And I think for a long time, American companies and even the new high-tech entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley kind of assumed that abroad was the rest of the world catching up with American tastes and choices and uh, democracy and freedom and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And the problem you have when companies make those assumptions is that in a way they approach the market from a naive point of view on the assumption that, oh, of course, it's going to be just like home. But actually, what you really need are those executives to get out a bit more, to observe a bit more intentionally, to pay attention to what those differences are, and integrate those differences when they get back. And I think, frankly, the challenge for so many of these companies is balancing the global and the local. In other words, the bigger the company, the more this dilemma is top of mind because they need to do global reach and marketing and they have to roll their products out all over the world. But they also need to some extent to localize those. And there's some fantastic examples of companies that do that really well. Now, you're a marketing expert, but you're talking immediately about much more than just marketing. You're talking about the corporate philosophy, corporate culture, the way companies work. They insulate themselves from the outside world because of all those internal structures. And you said that chief executives, top people in a company should get out more, but they don't, do they? They are constantly accompanied. They are chauffeured to the airport and back. They are insulated from the world in which they operate. They're extremely insulated. I can tell you many stories of clients that are surprised when I tell them that, you know, I've rung your reception or I've sat in your foyer in your lobby and this is the experience I've had and they're shocked because they don't walk through their own lobby, they don't take their own lifts, they don't phone their receptionist and they don't experience what the typical customer or client 
does experience. So you're absolutely right about that insulation and that costs them. And not knowing, it really means that they just don't have the context and the knowledge. And it's so important they have that. Who was that wonderful head of Avis, uh, the man who presided over Avis and introduced, we try harder, we have to, we're number two, and all that sort of thinking. He wrote the most marvelous book where he said, don't have a PR department and don't have a secretary because she insulates, and it would have been a she in those days, certainly, she insulates you from the outside world. It's very true. I think the more executives are smelling the atmosphere in a way. They're in the canteen, they're walking in the floor, they're visiting overseas and international offices. That visceral feeling for what's going on, the context is completely important, and they very often miss it. Yeah, but you've just described all those kind of things that are still internal company things, the canteen, sniffing the air, walking the corridors. They're not getting out. Not many chief executives do what A.G. Laffley of Procter & Gamble has done in the past. Whether he still does it, I don't know. The chairman of Procter & Gamble goes out and washes clothes with women on the banks of rivers in India just to see how they're using his product. And what a bright thing to do. Absolutely. I mean, there are some fantastic stories about leaders that join focus groups and are absolutely shocked when they hear some of the ways that people invent or misuse the product for their own purposes. Thinking about the washing powder example you just gave, I had a client that joined a focus group in North Africa and had no idea how critically important it was that the volume of powder in the soapbox be a certain amount because the extra powder meant that women could get extra washes out of the box, uh, etc. But the insight that this leader derived by being part of that, by listening, was so incredibly valuable. You wrote this book called Working with Americans. Explaining what? Well, it's trying to demystify 320 million people generally, and more specifically, it's trying to explain how we do business, because how we do business and how we negotiate and how we think is profoundly different from the European approach to business. Uh, But is that Americans abroad, who may be your boss, or is it Americans when you go over with a potential business enterprise to enter America? Which way round? In fact, it's both. So it could be either you have an American that you work for in Europe who's relocated from the States, this side of the Atlantic. It could be American bosses or clients that are over there and stay over there. In a way, it doesn't really matter. The fact that when you encounter American people in business, wherever that American is located, they will have a specific approach to how to negotiate and a mindset that comes with them wherever in the world they generally go. And I am not suggesting in any way that all Americans are always a certain way all the time, because that would be completely unfair and stereotyping. But generally, the U.S. business culture is pretty resilient and is pretty consistent, regardless of where in the U.S. you are. Overbearing, some people would call it. Universalist, some people would call it. (laughs) Well, that's a fascinating sort of phrase you slip in there, because one of the points I wanted to tease out with you is this concept of globalization. I think... 30, 40 years ago, globalization meant Americanization. It was big American companies going abroad, first of all to sell things, then the supply chain started importing stuff from 
China and other places. And that was globalization. It really was the Americanization of the world. And maybe the one we're now in is utterly different, isn't it? It's entirely different. And the reason it's entirely different is because technology has made it entirely different. So if you think about the 1950s and 60s, when you're absolutely right, U.S. companies went global. What did that mean? That meant basically setting up offices and satellite offshoots from the mothership in different parts of the world that effectively looked exactly like the head office. Decor was the same. The policies were the same. The dress code was the same. The behavior and ethics would be the same. Even with local hires, they were expected to behave just like the folks in HQ. That's now not the case because we're much more heterogeneous in terms of not just the American population and those in business being more diverse, but also technology and the Internet has meant that you now have to be much more aware of the nuances and contexts of different parts of the world. And your universal template that might have worked well in the 60s doesn't work so well now. But it was easy in the old days to have a target, anti-American, the Americans pernicious culture conquering the world, with that innate assumption that what everybody wanted was American stuff. That was there in the background, and then there was a resistance to it. There was a single target. Now, globalization is creating an equal backlash, but it's focused on the idea of globalization rather than any particular global person. Well, true, and therefore companies, regardless of their origins, whether they're American or British or French or Austrian, wherever they are located, they now have to realize that the template that has worked for them at home has to be adapted to overseas market. That localization is critical because that template will not work everywhere. The cultural differences, we're talking about refinements. We're not talking about radical overhauling, but we are talking about adaptations. You're talking about language. Definitely talking about language. China is uh, more Chinese speakers in the world than there are English speakers, aren't there? Absolutely. But also how people like to buy, the thinking process, how people process data in different parts of the world. Some people start with they want the macro or they want the theory first and then the evidence. Other countries and cultures want the evidence and then the theory. So you have to understand the sort of mindset, how people have been educated in different parts of the world, makes a really big difference. Look at German advertising. They like cross-sections. They like demonstrations in, um, of, of how the medicine actually works on the skin or, or in the tummy or something like that. They want um, a school sort of uh, lessons, don't they, when they're buying something? Yes, in the German market, they want the facts first and foremost. And the more objective in the German market that you communicate your attributes as a product or service, the more you're likely to win. Whereas in other parts of the world, it's not about the data. It's not about the product performance. It's about the romance. It's about the colors. It's about the design. It's about the speed. It's about how you'll feel. So understanding that is really will make the difference between winning and not winning. When I heard from perfumiers some time ago, there was a distinct split across the middle of Europe about incense. Incense in the north of Europe was exotic. Incense in the south of Europe 
was what your mother smelled of, and you didn't want to smell like that. But also, in Southern Europe, incense served a purpose. Incense was medicinal and almost antibacterial, and so it was purposeful. But we have nice air conditioning now, so we don't want to be reminded of that particular bit of the past, whereas this is exotic in in Nordic countries, for example. And it's very interesting that you talk about fragrance, because I'm a collector of perfumes, and I have over 150 fragrances in my my cupboard, much to my uh, family's annoyance. And one of the things that's really interesting about fragrance is, in Asia where you have high population densities and you have highly warm and humid weather. Heavy floral fragrances for women, for example, are not ever successful. What is successful are really light, yes, floral, but things that almost evaporate quickly that are really light and that only you can smell because you're on public transport, you're in crowded public spaces. Whereas in Europe or America, where you have more space, you can have a fragrance that's much more robust and lingers much more and fills the air much more. Gets men across a crowded room. Well, it's certainly because of space differences, mostly, and weather. So there's a great example of localization, and many of the fragrance houses know this. I beef on from time to time about the assumptions that American business makes about the world and how Europe, if it wasn't so riven by diplomatic, political, whatever difference it is, is actually more like the rest of the world than America is, if you see what I mean. This uniformity, which maybe you write about in your book, Working with Americans, Europe is full of these different cultures rubbing along together. As President de Gaulle said memorably, how can you rule a country with 360 cheeses? Well, Europe has more than 360 cheeses, and that's the kind of complexity of culture that marketing in Europe has to take on board in a way that maybe you don't in America, where there are recognized local regional differences, Spanish influences, Mexican, those sort of things, but not the same close-knit, how many different cultures in Switzerland, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, Goodness knows how many languages, because Retta Romance is 17 languages as well as all the others. So, Absolutely right. And However, if you look at our history in the U.S. about what made us successful, standardization made us successful. Think about Henry Ford. Think about... Ray Kroc at uh, McDonald's. Absolutely. These companies that have done really well because they've been able to scale, they've been able to build stores 3,000 miles across the continental United States and do very well based on the population there. And so in a way, the standardization has brought with it not just efficiencies, but success. And therefore, the assumption is that standard template will work no matter where we take our product, whether it's a Big Mac, whether it's a car, whether it's a printer, whether it's a a phone. And yet these companies find that when they take these products to overseas markets, not always will it resonate. Here's a great example. McDonald's, interestingly, are one of the greatest localizers there is. I use them regularly as a case study in what to do. In different parts of the world, they take some of their items and localize. In India, for example, the McCorma, the Macarabia sandwich in the Middle East. In France, they sell the macaron, that lovely pastry cookie. In Germany, they sell beer. In France, they sell wine. In American stores, they don't sell alcohol. This is what you ought to be doing if you want to do well wherever you operate internationally. Tell me about another American trade that 
choice is always good, that it's almost a democratic right. And then look at a Walmart with 150,000 lines, 200,000 different, whatever they call, SKUs or whatever they're called. Stock-keeping units, correct. And most of the stuff, of course, is the 20 or 30,000 lines that everybody buys. And the rest is just that to do what? To make you feel good about the choice you're invited to make? I, I cannot understand that identification of freedom and democracy with almost infinite choice. I understand it. What it's about is the desire we have to assert our individual vote. In the U.S. culture, we celebrate the individual, and we try to highlight what each person brings to the party that's unique to them, that's specific to them. So when you're in a retail environment like a Walmart or a grocery store or any other retail place... We want you to assert your choice. We want you to make it your way. We want you to go into a Starbucks and have your latte with extra cream and extra shakes of chocolate powder on the top or cinnamon and etc. So we want you to feel a sense of ownership that you have crafted this product or you have chosen this very specific product based on your highly individual needs. And that really resonates for Americans because we've voted and we think, isn't this retailer fantastic? They're stocking this super niche product that I like because I really go for the color fuchsia and I really go for things without added gluten, whatever it might be. So that huge choice makes you feel more individual, even though you may not exercise it. You may just buy mainly those 20,000 basic lines. Yes, and I want to have a vote and I want to be confronted by those 100,000 SKUs and I will then feel empowered because I chose the one in that 100,000 that reflects my values, my tastes, my geography, my view of the world, whatever it might be, and I want the option. There is, of course, another underground sort of feature of that. It is that compared with, say, Europe, real estate is cheap in America, so stocking is not piling up oodles of stuff on very expensive shelves as it would be in Britain, say. Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's funny. When Costco first opened their retail stores in the UK, one of the things they realized was that buying 20 rolls of toilet paper was not really what British consumers were doing. Because, especially in London, you just don't have the space to put this stuff. Similarly, you know, the very large, almost like two liter size ketchup containers, etc., these almost catering size products. Unless you live in the suburbs where you have a garage or you have a bigger home and you can store all this, if you're in central London, you're never going to buy these product sizes ever. And that's a fairly basic assault on the original Costco idea, which was to build a warehouse and let people in for the warehouse experience and buy in bulk nearly everything. Can't do that really effectively here, so you need another insight. You need an insight maybe like the founder of IKEA, who saw people very early on in his career trying to load a piece of furniture he'd sold them into a very small car, and out of that grew that empire. The basic principle is most of what we sell you can get in your car and drive it home. Amazing insight to derive from just one particular encounter. Yeah, but that insight 
has come through really keen observation. And the only way any marketer or any company will do well in any overseas market outside their home market is by paying attention to the context, to the detail, just like you've described. Many thanks to Alison Stewart-Allen, Chief Executive of a consultancy called International Marketing Partners. She's one of the participants in the ninth annual Global Peter Drucker Forum taking place in Vienna in November. More podcasts coming up soon.